script and evolution. Two separate topics. Well, the current Jewish state is 5764. And the age of the universe is currently estimated at 12.8 billion years. Okay, true. Last year it was 15 billion years, and they've been grading it down, you know, but who's to, who's to pick it a couple of billion years in there? <laughs> now, there are two ways out of this contradiction. One way is to say that the scientific date is true, and the Jewish date is referring only to Adam. So it's also true, but it's not referring to the age of the universe, it's just referring to Adam. And the other way out is to say that the Jewish state is true for the whole universe, and the scientific date is based on misleading evidence and is untrue. I'll describe each way out, and then, as I said, we'll move on to evolution. So, the first way out that the scientific date is literally true. The universe is as old as you like. Which means that the first six days referred to in the chapter, chapter 1 of Genesis are not 24-hour periods. Now listen, we're not reinterpreting Genesis in order to make it fit with science. That's absolutely unacceptable. I would rather live with the problem than do that. The minute you start reinterpreting the tradition to fit with the latest scientific results, you guarantee two things. Number one, you'll have to reinterpret it every couple hundred years because science will change. And aside from that, it means that your tradition has no positive content. We don't do that. The tradition has to be interpreted on the basis of its own internal sources. So if I say the first six days of Genesis are not 24-hour periods, I have to justify that internally. Not by reference to what science seems to have discovered. And I will do that instantly. What is a day? A day is a cycle of the sun in its orientation to some place on earth. That's the definition of a day. From being overhead New York to being overhead New York again. Or another such cycle. The day is not 24 hours. Proof, because astronomers tell us that the day is getting longer, because the Earth's rotation is slowing down, and 24 hours is not getting longer. 24 hours is being 24 hours. Right? The day is a cycle of the sun and its orientation to a place on the Earth. That's the definition of a day. Now, when did those cycles start? Cycles of the sun and orientation of the Earth. Well, in the first chapter of Genesis, it says that the sun was made on day four. So, what is called in the first chapter of Genesis, the third day, in quotation marks now, cannot be literally a day. The third day was not literally what we call a day. Because what we call a day is the cycle of the sun in relationship to the earth. You didn't have that on day three. So whatever you say, day three was not what we call it. I, the Torah, uses the word day. So that means there has to be some analogy. Some analogy. 
analogy is that if you want, you could say 24 hours. That's only because you want, not because you have to. If you want, you could pick some other analogy. And the commentators are split. Some say 24 hours, and some say it was another kind of relationship, what we call day. In particular, Genesis only mentions an alternation between dark and light. Arab and Boker. Now, for Hoshech and Or, darkness and light, there could be other elements in the early creation which count as darkness and light, and their variation is what counts as that so-called day. For example, according to standard cosmology, for the first few hundred thousand years, the plasma was so dense, light could not travel. The minute that a photon was created, it was immediately absorbed by some local uh, particle which could absorb it. And then, after a few hundred thousand years, it became transparent. And light could travel. So some want to suggest that maybe that's the first alternation of dark and light. Which would take hundreds of thousands of years until the darkness passed. At any rate, it doesn't have to be 24 hours. So we are free to regard the first three days as much longer periods of time. Ah, but you'll ask, what about days 4, 5, and 6? There the sun was in its place. That's true. But... At the end of each of the six days of the first chapter of Genesis, there is a formula. It was evening, it was morning, day end. That formula does not appear ever again. In a thousand pages of Tanakh, it never appears again. On literary grounds, the book is telling you that those six days had some special character, apart from everything that came afterwards. On literary grounds, that's what the book is telling you. So, if the first three days are understood as longer periods of time, the last three days can be understood as longer periods of time also. Shabbos, the seventh day, doesn't have that phrase. Because evening, this morning, the seventh day, don't have that. So, on internal literary grounds, in the book, first chapter of Genesis, it could be longer than 24 hours. There are Midrashim, and there are Kabbalistic works, which indicate that the age of the universe is much, much more than 5764. The RA captain translated one, we had a calculation there, something like 15 billion. So it is an available position from internal sources that the universe is much older than 15 billion, than, than 5764. 5764, then we'll go back to Adam. Now, that also has to be explained. Aren't there remains of humans? Much older than 5764, 100,000, half a million, a million, depending upon how you define human and whose position on the fines you take. Certainly much older than 5764. Well, if it's our date, then we get to define human. And our definition of human is comprising four characteristics. A certain bodily form, a certain level of intelligence, Morality and spirituality. We will not call a creature human unless it has all four of those characteristics. Why? Because, obviously, Adam was spoken to by God directly, and he was given a command, he was held responsible for it, and he was punished for it. So Adam obviously possessed both spirituality and morality, 
in addition to a certain bodily form and intelligence. For us, humanity requires all four characteristics. Now, there is no evidence, there is no evidence of any creature possessing all four characteristics before 5764 years ago. There's no evidence of any creature possessing all those characteristics before our day. Why is that? Because in order to have evidence for morality and spirituality, you must have linguistic remains. You must find the expression of the creature in language. If you don't have that, you will not have any evidence of its morality or spirituality. Because without linguistic remains, what you do find, tools, weapons, habitats, enchanting cave paintings in France from, from 3,000 years ago, those findings are too thin. They are in, subject to a vast variety of interpretation, and there's no reason whatsoever to assign them to an uh, aspect of morality and spirituality. Note well, I'm not saying they didn't have language. I'm just saying we didn't find any linguistic remains quite reasonable to suppose that those creatures before 5764 did speak. The question is not did they speak. The question is what did they speak about? So, those enchanting cave paintings, and they really are enchanting artistically, uh, superb. Um, one theory is that they painted it to celebrate a successful hunt. One theory is that they were starving, so they painted it to sort of supplement the fact that they didn't have anything to eat. Another theory was that they were good artists and they enjoyed painting things in their environment. Animals, because they're alive, present certain artistic challenges, and they painted them because they enjoyed painting. In other words, we don't have a clue why they painted it. Uh, Neanderthal man buried its dead. I actually read an anthropologist, a paleoanthropologist, who said this proved they believed in a soul and they were religious. And, you know, give me a break. Dead bodies rot, and they stink. Maybe they wanted to get it out of the environment. Maybe they thought it was good for fertilizer. Maybe they thought it was a taboo or something. Who knows what they thought? Without finding linguistic remains, you have no reason to attribute morality and spirituality, which means there's no evidence of morality and spirituality. Now, the oldest linguistic remains are about 5,000 years old. That's it. So there's no evidence of any future possessing morality and spirituality before 5764, and therefore we have no problem in saying that uh, humans, what we call humans, started then. The others will be cousins on the evolutionary bush, as Gould called it, not the tree, which is too linear, no, the bush. It's almost impossible to put the so-called human remains in any sequence. And those who believe in the bush say, you shouldn't be able to put them in a sequence, because they're all cousins. They don't line up as, as former, or, or, you know, former ancestors in later developments. And there's no reason to associate them with what we call this. That's one solution. The other solution is that 5764 is the age of the universe. And that means that the appearance that science relies upon to calculate the date of 12.8 billion is based on false evidence. God put false evidence in the creation to indicate an older age, but the truth is it's not really that old. There never were any dinosaurs, it just made bones in the earth. The light that we measure coming from those distant stars was created in between us and the stars, in space. So that we have absorbed 5764 light years of light, 
And that's it. Because it was created that close to us. It didn't come all the way from those distant stars and galaxies. Now the usual response to this idea is, why would God do that? Said with a kind of sneer or a snicker. Why would God do that? Because my training is in logic, I want to point out to you that I don't have to answer that question. That question is irrelevant. We're faced with a contradiction. Jesus is 57-64. Science is 12.8 billion. I suggest that 57-64 is true. 12.8 billion is false. Based on misleading evidence that God put into the universe. Someone asks, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Suppose I say, I don't know. I haven't got a clue. Does that mean that my solution is wrong? Does the cast doubt of the solution? I don't know why he did it. Ask him. Don't ask me. Why are you asking me? How am I supposed to know why he did it? He just did it. This question is irrelevant to the suggested solution. Now, having pointed that out and said it twice, I'll tell you the answer to the question. <laughs> we have an answer. And it's not too difficult either. Poor Elliot Sobers, who was an excellent philosopher of science, I've learned a great deal from his books. Even he made this, makes this error. The answer is not too difficult. From our point of view, according to our the philosophy, a philosophy that has nothing to do with evolution, a philosophy that's thousands of years old, the physical world is created in order to hide God's presence. So we should not be able to see Him in operation. He is in operation continuously, but it's created in such a way that we can't see it. So the universe is shot through with misleading appearances. In particular, that the universe seems to work like a, like a machine, like a blind machine, not under anyone's control. That is a gigantic misleading appearance, and God created it precisely to have that misleading appearance, to make it appear that He is not running it moment by moment. So, you add this to the list of misleading appearances. From my point of view, this is not difficult. Indeed, if God created Adam as a, a mature adult, then you have a misleading appearance built in for sure. Because someone who met Adam five minutes after he was created could swear he was 30 years old. And he has to do five minutes old. So the idea of misleading age built into the universe is ABCs. And we do have a reason for it. But that's not necessary for the solution. Now there is one more objection that is raised to this idea which is a little more sophisticated, and I'll explain the answer to that, and I'll take questions briefly so I can get out of the evolution. The more sophisticated objection is this. You're saying God created the universe with misleading evidence of age really 57, 64 years ago. Couldn't you use that argument to justify anything? I'm sure of 50,000, 500,000, 5 million, 5 years ago? Or, as Bertrand Russell put it, five minutes ago? Couldn't you defend any arbitrary date by saying, the universe is really only five minutes old, but God created it to appear to be much older than that? Gosh, it does seem that you could. Well, says the critic, any technique, any technique that you could use to defend any arbitrary idea means that if you use that technique, you're bringing all investigation to, to an end. You are, you are uh, ending all investigation, all assessment of evidence, all assessment of, of uh, hypotheses. 
because for any hypothesis, no matter how much evidence you have, you could always say, yes, I know the evidence looks like that. But the truth is entirely different, and God just created it to make it look that way. And any technique that you could use to cut off all investigation, to cut off all inquiry, to cut off all research, is an illegitimate technique. Techniques like that are inherently illogical because they end all investigation. I think that that objection is accurate. It's accurate in its principles, but it doesn't apply to the case at issue. Yes, any technique that could be used across the board to disqualify or to defend any arbitrary selected hypothesis, any such technique would be illegitimate to use. That's not what's happening. I'll explain to you, I'll give you an example, an analogy, to make it clear, and I'll show you, in this case, why, uh, why that's the accurate description. Here. A man is accused of committing murder. We have his fingerprints at the scene of the crime. We have his footprints outside the window. We have a weapon of the type with which the murder was committed in his possession. He has a motive to stand the game from it. That's a lot of evidence. Now, the defense attorney says, my client is being framed. That's what he says. He just says it. That's my defense. It's a frame-up. Well, I don't think that will suffice to get him off. Because if you could say that, and that just saying it would be an adequate defense, you could never convict anybody of anything. The defense could always say, it's a frame-up. So you can't just say it's a frame-up arbitrarily in any case that you choose. But now, let's suppose that the defense attorney presents that witness who says that he saw the defendant at the time of the crime 100 miles away. Now you have a contradiction in the evidence. You have a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to his being guilty, and you have one eyewitness who says he couldn't have done it because he was too far away. Now the defense attorney says, I claim that the Circumstantial evidence is a frame-up. Well, I think now would be relevant to investigate the possibility of a frame-up. Frame-ups do happen. It's rare, but they do happen. It's certainly a possible thing to happen, and on occasion they do happen. Now that you have a contradiction in the evidence suggesting that it's a frame-up is a reasonable suggestion. Because you're only suggesting it when it's a contradiction in the evidence. You're not using it across the board to attack any arbitrary claim of, of guilt. Only when there's a contradiction. Now, in our case, we have the scientific date based on scientific evidence, and we have the Jewish date based on the evidence in favor of the truth of the Jewish tradition, which I presented two weeks ago at great length. So, if I look at my total evidence, I have a contradiction in my total evidence. When you have a contradiction in your total evidence, it is appropriate to suggest that there's been a frame-up. And that's precisely what we're suggesting here, that God framed the world to look older than it really is. So we're not using a technique that could defeat or support arbitrarily any hypothesis you like. We're using a technique only in the case where there's a conflict in the total evidence, and then it seems to me quite appropriate to suggest that there's been a frame-up, and it's not subject to the objection that we raised. So it seems to me that this is also an adequate way to solve the problem. We now have two ways to solve the contradiction in the ages of the universe. 
Uh, and any problem for which we have two solutions is not a problem over which we lose much sleep. Um, sometimes people ask, so which one of them is right? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Frankly, it doesn't bother me much because either way, I don't have to lose any sleep over the contradiction between um, the supposed contradiction between the dates. Yeah, question. Yeah, um, previously you said that you answered the question why would why would God hide uh, why why would God hide uh, well produce evidence that the world is the universe is older than it is. Right. And, and you answered that by saying that uh, because the universe is created such that God can just hit. But there's a difference between hiding God's image and giving signs that oppose God's image. I don't think so. And the, and the, what I gave you is precisely a case of God's uh, creating a false appearance. When he creates a universe that seems to work by blind mechanical forces, that creates a false belief. The false belief is it's running on its own and God is not making it work. Now that's false. That's false about him. So it's clear that he wants us to have false appearances. Now, he also tells us the truth and expects us to investigate which has more evidence and expects us to learn. That's what that same truth is true with respect to the age of the universe. So he definitely created a universe with false appearances built in. Alright, so you're sitting to find hiding not only hiding, but giving false false ideas. Well, I think, I think, I think one implies the other. I mean, he, he is actually operating the world continuously. So if he's hiding, if it looks like he's hiding, then that looks like something false. And additionally, um, in the latest example, witness in, uh, in the testimony and that being related to Soren and such, that, that depends on your uh, believability of the witness itself. If the witness is, is, is not trustworthy. Yeah, of course. Then, then you won't have a contradiction. You're in again. Okay. The truth is, when I, when I used to present it, I used to say I have two, two and a half solutions. And the half solution is precisely that. Given that deep theory is so unstable, um, why, you know, why should I have to feel the pressure of answering it all together? But I, I, with all the work that I did yesterday, I find that the, the mythology of science is so strong that when I say that, I lose my credibility. And I, so I, I don't say it anymore, but on my official notes, I actually have it written down. And uh, I, I do say, yes, of course, there are maverick theories that say the universe isn't expanding. But the whole idea of expanding the universe is a big bang for the state. And if they're true, then the whole idea of the age of the universe is all bets off. Everything has to be revised. But, uh, you know, the, the mythology is so strong that you, you can't shake the deep belief in it. So that's why I, <laughs> I don't say that. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, it is another way out. Yeah. So we can't really prove much of anything that happened 5,000 years ago, or more than 5,000 years ago. So if evidence were to suggest that there was like moral and spiritual, uh, moral, moral and spiritual like aspects of societies, then how can how compelling would that evidence seem to be? It seems like you could always just say, oh, that's that's not good enough, or that's you know. Well, let's understand. I didn't say anything about there being evidence that's not being good enough. I said there isn't any at all. So I didn't take that position of just blinking away the evidence because I don't like it. I'm saying there is none at all. Now, if you found Antigone, for example, produced 8,000 years ago, then we'd be in trouble. Antigone is a play about a great moral dilemma. This woman's, uh, she's a princess and her brother was uh, killed and the father said not to bury the body. 
So she has a, 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 an obligation to her brother, an obligation to the dead, an obligation to her father, and she agonizes over this complicated obligation. If you found something that, like that just eight, uh, eight, 8,000 years ago, I would say, I would give up the solution. I go to the other solution. But as a matter of fact, there isn't any. So that's, that's what makes this solution available. Otherwise, it would be very difficult. Yeah, not, that's just a mistake. It isn't, isn't good enough. If you had something as profound morally as that kind of dilemma written with, you know, with excruciating pain as, 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 that, as that is written, to say that they weren't moral and spiritual, I think, would be an indefensible position. Yeah. No. This is, uh, you know, the answer is no. Um, Everybody talks about carbon dating, but you don't ever hear talking about uranium dating or potassium argon dating, which is the way dating really is done. And that pressure of the water, the flood, there's no evidence whatsoever that pressure changes. Rates of atomic decay. All of this, uh, uh, from my, my studies, is just... It's it shooting the breeze, and, it's, and it's, it, it makes us look woefully out of date scientifically when we, when we feel for this. Reliable. You know, within 10%, within 10%, I mean, they did go from 15 billion a couple of years ago to 12.8 billion last year. So, uh, you know, how reliable is reliable, right? But uh, they, it's not that it's not that they make stupid mistakes, or that we can clearly see where their mistakes, uh, where they. Uh, no. no, you can't try it. Might be you can't try it. Okay, let's, let's go to evolution. Um, we're about to tell you what evolution is. And then I'll share with you a few of its great, great shortcomings. Um, imagine a thing. Call it A. This thing A makes copies of itself. This thing lives in an environment with lots of raw materials, and it assembles those raw materials into copies of itself. It takes a while, you know, a couple of hours, three hours, four hours. You put this A into the soup, and after three or four hours, you have two A's. The original one and the copy. After three or four hours, you're going to have four, because right, A's make copies of themselves, and this new A is a copy of the old one. So it's also going to make copies of itself. And after three or four hours, you're going to have eight. And you have 16, and you'll have a population explosion, right? Okay. Now, this thing A is very, very good at making copies. Very, very good. But not perfect. Just very, very good. Every thousand copies or so, it makes a mistake. Somewhere, a bolt gets attached wrong, or an atom is out of place, or something gets substituted... You know, a line of code is replaced by advertisements from, from a cereal box. Or who knows? Something goes wrong every thousand times. Well, a thing that can make copies of itself is a pretty complicated thing. And if you make a mistake in building it, you're likely to kill it. Imagine writing computer code, you know, just sticking an arbitrary mistake in line someplace. It's likely to just bust, you know, it's not going to do anything. Right. So, the vast, vast majority of these mistakes will make the result broken or worse in, in a variety of ways. But let's imagine that once in a thousand of the mistakes, the mistake actually improves it. It improves the thing's ability to make copies of itself. It makes it a little faster or a little more long-lasting or it uses a little bit less energy. It makes it a little better. 
So that means once in a million copies, there'll be an improvement. Okay, now let's call the improved thing A star. Well, A star is a little better for making copies of itself than A is. So now, you have the A's, the old ones, all million of them, which are reproducing badly. <laughs> and then you have the A star, also reproducing. Now, none of these things last forever. Eventually, they break down and dissolve into their original constituents. Obviously, if the A star is better at doing it, slowly but surely, the A star is going to overtake the A. And I'll produce it. Yes, it will. And then the environment will get four and four of A stars. Until what happens, do you think? Good for you. A double star. Until once in a million copies, A star's mistake turns out to be an improvement. And it's slightly better at making copies. And I got A double star, which will out-compete out, out uh, A star. Is the process clear to you? You now know the whole story. Evolution says, this is the process that has produced the totality of life. This is how it's done. Okay, there are bells and whistles about how it's done and how you do the statistics and all that, but this is it. All textbooks on, on evolution say that this is the scheme. Things reproduce, and they don't reproduce exactly right. When they make mistakes, usually it destroys it, but once at a blue moon, and I mean a million bacillus. It's 100 billion. I don't care. I'm just using numbers for illustration. And that alone does the whole job. From here you have the whole blooming, buzzing confusion of life from this alone. Notice that means that evolution, strictly speaking, assumes you have something that can make copies. It doesn't tell you how the first thing that makes copies got there. We'll talk about it. Here's the best in a little while. But that's not its job. Its job is to tell you once you've got something making copies, how it works. Sometimes they tell you that the mistakes, the mistakes that are made in copying are random. These are random variations. I just want to point out the word random is a tricky word. There is no universally accepted definition of the word. But it's not really necessary. They don't mean random in a strict mathematical sense. What they mean is there's nothing guiding it, nothing producing it, nothing pushing it towards a particular end. The variations are as broad and as, as different as the physical reality will allow. I mean, if you have uh, a cube and you throw it in the air and it falls down, it will fall on one of the faces. It won't balance on one of the sides. It won't balance on a point. Is that really random? Look, some of the outcomes are absolutely impossible. It's all right. It's also random. Because nothing's pointing it to a six, more than a one, more than a three. That's what they mean. doesn't mean anything can happen. It means that the physical reality allows certain possibilities. All the possibilities that are possible are realized and uh, without any guiding force that pushes in one direction rather than another. Okay. Now, let's turn to uh, some critique. First of all, a logical critique. This is, because I'm a logician, my, my heart is in this one. But there's no more significant than the others. The claim of evolution is that something happened due to an unguided accidental process. Nothing pushed it in that direction. It just, with a lot of time and a lot of, uh, a lot of resources, all the variations were tried out, all the ones that are physically possible, and by accident, 
some, you know, some tiny minority were superior. That's how progress was made. Well, if somebody claims that something happens by an accidental process, he owes us a piece of information. And if he doesn't give us that piece of information, then his claim cannot be taken as established. I'll give you an example. I have an object on one side of which I painted an X. I threw this object into the air three times, and three times in a row it landed on the X. By accident. I didn't throw it in any special way. It's not weighted on one side, not magnetized. You know, ridges that catch the air and determine that it should fall away. It's completely accidental that it landed on the same side three times in a row. Do you believe me? Disbelieve me? You shouldn't believe me. You shouldn't disbelieve me. Because I left out one crucial piece of information. What didn't I tell you? I didn't tell you how many sides the object had. Now, maybe you assumed it was a coin. Rash assumption. If I don't tell you, don't assume it. Maybe it was a shilling guy with a thousand sides. Who knows what it is? If it's a coin, you could vote yes because it'll have a one-eighth of the time. Not so surprising that you have it. The Chilean God, it's one in a trillion. You shouldn't vote for that. I suppose I refuse to tell you. I'm not telling you how many sides it has. <laughs> but what should you conclude? You should conclude that I don't know whether to believe you or not. If you're not going to tell me how many sides it has, I'm going to make up my mind. Because I don't know the probability of it happening the way you said. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. There's no clue what the probability might be that life would be produced by the process of evolution or not. There's no clue. Listen to what Francis Crick, who well, I had no little time in biology, so I suppose he knows what he's talking about, wrote in 1985. At the present time, we can only say that we cannot decide whether the origin of life on Earth was an extremely unlikely event or almost a certainty or any possibility between these two extremes. Which means, in short English, you know, if you're a scientist, you can write long sentences, otherwise you're not credible. It means, certainly, we don't know what the probability is. Well, I suggest to you, if somebody tells you something happened by an accidental process and can't give you a clue as to what the probability is, you shouldn't believe him. You shouldn't disbelieve him. You should say, you haven't given me enough information to rationally make up my mind. That's the situation. It hasn't changed since 1985. No one has a clue what the probability is. The, the big reason why they don't have a clue is because no one can specify in detail what the processes were. If you can't specify in detail what the processes were, you have a clue what the probability is. Okay, now, um, you find an enormous amount of misunderstood and misapplied observations and experiments. To the extent that either you have to suspect the competence of the whole crew, or the honesty of the whole crew, or perhaps both. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, anybody who studied evolution knows about the famous Kettlewell experiments with the peppered moths in northern England. Now, um, Here's what Richard Dawkins writes. 
me tell you. If it's written by Dawkins, you need a whole pound of salt. Natural selection can bring about minor changes, like the dark coloration that has evolved in various species of moth since the Industrial Revolution. Gosh. Um, sounds to me like he's telling me natural selection brought about dark coloration. It was before that there wasn't dark coloration. And now there is. Natural selection did it. You see, evolution. Right? Evolution is supposed to tell you where where things come from. How, how things originate. What's the Darren Cole's book? Origin of Species. Right? That's what evolution is about. Okay. Now let me tell you what Mark Ridley writes, who's also a believer in evolution, about what he says really happened. And you see that what he says really happened doesn't match Dawkins' statement at all. So this is Ridley. The peppered moth, Pistone petularia, this moth has two types. It has two types. A dark melanic type and a lighter pepper type. It always had two types. Before the Industrial Revolution, the pepper type, the lighter one, was much commoner of the two. Then, in industrial areas, the melanic type increased in frequency, the darker one, to become more abundant of two. In non-industrial areas, the pepper type remained the commoner. Why? Because the industrial uh, um, uh, soot killed the lichens on the trees. Therefore, the trees became darker, they were covered over, and therefore, this is the story anyway, the lighter ones could be eaten by the birds because they were more visible against the background. The darker ones had better camouflage against the back, dark background. That's why the darker ones became more popular. As industrial area activity decreased, the pepper type became more common again. That's what Ridley says really happened. Now notice, according to Ridley's story, you started with two types, and you continued with two types, and you ended with two types. All you have is a change in the frequency. Originally, the lighter was more common. Then, when the background changed, the darker became more common, and the lighter became more common. There's no new appearance of features here at all. So, what is this illustrating? This is illustrating that when life gets tough, a lot of you people are going to die out. I mean, did anybody doubt that? Did any believer in God say this wouldn't happen? What is this supposed to be teaching me that I didn't know or wouldn't be able to explain or wouldn't have anticipated before? Indeed, a critical evolution might say, you know, if life gets difficult, eventually they're supposed to die out altogether, the unsuccessful types, right? In competing for resources, the unsuccessful ones should have less offspring and die out altogether. How come the lighter ones didn't die out altogether? Revolutionists will say, come on, a hundred years? You need a hundred thousand years for an experiment like that. Okay, okay. He's protecting himself against reputation. But this alone certainly isn't evidence that evolution is correct. But this is nothing, boys and girls. The whole story is wrong. The whole story is a fake. None of it ever happened. It's in every textbook. It's taught in every course. And the whole thing is a fake. How do I know? Because it says so in nature. <laughs> now the Brits are in charge. Nature is one of the two greatest science magazines in the world. Here's the one in science. Nature comes first because it's British and also because M comes first. 
There is a book called Evolution in Action by Michael Majerus, published by Oxford University Press. It costs $125, in case you're interested. Now, this was reviewed by Jerry Acoin in Nature in 1998. Listen to Jerry Acoin. Listen to what he writes. From time to time, evolutionists re-examine a classical experimental study and find, to their horror, that it is flawed or downright wrong. We no longer use, and he gives a, long, a list of five, five, five examples that were all, were all used for evolution. We don't use them anymore. Could it turn out to be wrong? I'll discuss one of them in a minute. Until now, however, the prize horse in our stable of examples has been the evolution of industrial melanism in the pepperboard. This classic example is in bad shape. Number one, this moth probably does not rest on tree trunks. <laughs> they don't rest on tree trunks at all! Exactly two moths have been seen in such a position in more than 40 years of intensive search. <laughs> you can imagine these guys running around the forest, searching and searching and searching for these moths. For 40 years! <laughs> they only found two in 40 years. So the idea that lighter and darker the birds eat it and all the rest of that, it's baloney. They don't rest there. This alone invalidates Kettlewell's release recapture experiment and as moths were released by placing them onto the tree trunks. Not that he did his experiment. He put the moths on the trunks. Then he waited for the birds to eat them. It didn't occur to him to take a look and see whether they land there by themselves. Kettlewell also released his moths during the day while they normally choose resting places at night. They don't sit down in the daytime. They don't sit down at night. Well, guess what? At night, the coloration of the background doesn't help protect it from being eaten by birds because it's nighttime and there isn't any light. The story is further eroded by noting that the resurgence of Typica occurred well before the lichens recolonized the polluted trees. Actually, the lighter ones made a comeback before the pollution stopped and before the change in the background took place, so it's not synchronized. And that a parallel increase and decrease of the melanic form also occurred in industrial areas in the United States, where there was no change in the abundance of the lichens that are supposed to play such a role. The same, upon, the same change in, in, in proportions took place in the United States where the industrialization played no role. There's no change in the background at all. Finally, the results of Kettlewell's behavioral experiments were not replicated in later studies. Moths have no tendency to choose magic backgrounds. Magirus finds many other flaws in the work. Many other flaws, could you imagine? But there's numerous to list here. You know, nature didn't give me space for more mistakes in this example. Now, I suggest to you that this is really, this is really absurd. This we're supposed to take seriously. A science that can produce it, and it's been in all the textbooks for the last 50 years, and it has stuck to these kinds of flaws. Now, anybody here who's studying biology or is interested, I want to know. This article came out in 1998. I want to know about textbooks published in 2002. Do they still use the example? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They force predicted. It's unbelievable, right? Now, another example that he gives here of the ones they don't use anymore, at least they don't use in the technical literature, who knows what they do in the textbooks, is the relationship between viceroy and monarch butterflies. There's a thing in evolution called Batesian mimicry, after a guy named Bates. And he said, imagine a species that has a natural 
defense against predators. In the case of the monarch butterfly, it tastes terrible. Birds who eat these things, fine. And they learn. They learn. If it looks like that, you don't eat it, because <laughs> you won't feel good afterwards. Actually, the birds have to learn this. Now they say, what would happen if a new species would evolve to have the same appearance, but no natural defense? It could cash in on the natural defense of the first one. So, you have another type of butterfly, viceroy butterflies, which are very similar to, baby, to um, monarch butterflies. And what they tell you is that the birds learn by eating a monarch. A bird will eat a monarch once. Never again in its life will it eat a monarch. It's, it's too revolting experience. And then, because the viceroys look, at them, look like the monarchs, the birds won't eat the viceroys either. Even though the viceroys don't have that defense. So, the viceroy is cashing in on the natural defense of the monarch without paying the evolutionary cost of developing the defense itself. All it has to do is involve the, the appearance. I, uh, the story with you, you understand the story? Okay. It's just that they didn't ask one little question. I mean, any chef would ask this question. How do you think the viceroy's taste? Nobody ever thought about that. Until about eight years ago, ten years ago, until somebody tried a very simple experiment. He pulled the wings off both monarch and viceroy butterfly, so that you've got just the body, which looks exactly the same, and he fed it to the birds, and they threw up on both of them. Turns out that the viceroy is exactly the same, naturally. Nobody thought to check that. Why? Because evolution is clearly true, and Bates created this concept, so it looks like it, so it's got to be true. Well, that's not a strong recommendation for a science that it can be taken in by examples like that and present them as established facts when the simplest critical experiment is performed. Yeah. And what about the wings? Like, do the wings taste good too? Or? I think it's the body. The body that's, uh, that's uh, the what problem. What about this cause, the noisy uh, effect? They pulled off the wings and they ate only the bodies and they, were, and they, and they had, the, it had the effect. Yeah, but the difference is in the wings, not in the body. The wings contain the, uh, the poison. They ate only the bodies, and they had the poisonous effect. So wings couldn't be the only thing that ate the poison. Okay. Now, um, another example of misuse of, uh, of that. You read all the time about um, bacteria becoming resistant to drugs. Doesn't that prove evolution? They have evolved resistance to the drug. That means there must be a change in the DNA. And that change gives them an advantage that they're not killed off by the drug. The truth is that this piece of evidence says nothing of the kind. And indeed, I was just in England now. How could I was staying? They received a science, some kind of science digest for one of the kids who's in school. I learned something new. Uh, this child is 12 years old. And it's England, so it's Something special. Every page has pictures and diagrams on it. You can't expect a student to read a paragraph of text. There is no such thing. Without a picture and diagram, it doesn't go. Okay. Now, <laughs> they got it right. They got it right. Where's everybody else gets it wrong? When you have a, a new, uh, a new um, drug, and the drug is applied to bacteria, what can happen, and what apparently they does happen, is this. Not all, not, not all bacteria are the same. They're not all carbon copies of one another. There are already existent variations in this strain of bacteria. 
Now you apply the new drug. Let's say it wipes out 99.6% of them. But there's naturally, in the population already, a 0.4% that is resistant to the drug. Of course, at the outset, you're wiping out 99.6. The person's going to recover. The body also helps to knock out, the, uh, you know, it does not only the antibodies, it does, the body has its own antibodies as well. I know, I know. I see what I'm so, over time, however, that 0.4% is allowed to multiply, whereas the others are being killed off systematically. Over time, that 0.4% becomes a bigger and bigger portion of the population. Until, after 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, that type of bacteria is now represented by the one that was resistant. And, of course, now the, the, the antibiotic doesn't work. This doesn't require any changes at all. No changes in DNA, no evolution of new characteristics. It'll just produce. It's, like, it's really like the, the, the moths, right? You change the proportion by killing out a certain type. The only way that you could demonstrate that real evolution took place is this. Take a single bacterium and put it in an appropriate environment and have it multiply. Now, they multiply quite fast, so, you know, overnight you can have a whole population. Now, imagine taking a single bacterium and putting it in a petri dish and let it become a whole colony overnight. And now you apply a drug and the drug kills out half of the population and not the other half. Then you could document that some change must have taken place. Because if they had all been identical to, uh, copies, then either they would have all died or they all would have survived. And this has been done. This has been done, not with drugs, I don't believe, but it's been done with other types of tests, so that some kind of change in the properties of bacteria has been demonstrated in this way. But the studies from hospitals that this drug used to work against this bacteria and doesn't work anymore, that has nothing to do with it. That doesn't show that anything has changed. What difference does it make? I'm talking about whether or not this sequence of events is evidence that evolution takes place. Right, no, but that 0.4% could be from the multiplication of the one particular bacteria, and that 0.4% comes from that one particular bacteria that changed over time. And it could be leprechauns that are stirring the soup. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only asking, does this sequence of events give evidence for evolution? The answer is no. Starting with a with a with a, 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 a type of bacteria using an antibiotic and having the antibiotic become less and less effective over time is no evidence that anything changes genetic form. That's all. I'm interested in the logic of the of the physician how they use evidence, and this is one of the cases where it doesn't work. Now, another fact. Everybody tells you, and I think in this case we probably should agree that something called micro-evolution takes place. That means minor variation on characteristics takes place. Size, or uh, speed, or strength of muscles, or... That won't exactly get you from a fox to a whale, but, you know, it could get you better foxes. You know, stronger foxes, you know. Different shaped teeth, or different shaped beaks of the... Bullfinches, you know, finches in, in Galapagos, even though there are people who think that that's a mistake, also, all right. The question is whether the same causes that produce these minor variations are also what produce the gigantic variations. 
Now, the way the Akushis puts it is this. Well, you see it works to change the shape of the beak. Now, just imagine a million of them. So a million of them could take you from a hummingbird to an ostrich. You know, if that happened once a thousand years, all you need is, well, a thousand years, you know, all you need is a billion years, right? But you got five billion, you know, so that's not happening for those animals, I understand that. The idea is you have plenty of time, and imagine little changes, so these little changes just integrate into big changes. Well, it ain't that simple. Um, let me give you a, an example, and then I'll give you a, quick, a quote from Stephen J. Gould. Um, who made the pyramids? Pyramids are these giant rocks, you know, these, these stones which weigh tons. I have a theory. The pyramids were made by billions of ants working together. <laughs> Did you know that an ant can carry eight times its own weight? Now, they do work together, don't they? You ever see an anthill? I mean, they burrow these things underground, and they have large canals, and they fight as an, as an army. They certainly can cooperate. So why can't you imagine billions of ants, you know, moving these big boulders, and, you know... Sounds pretty dumb, doesn't it? Why? Because we have no evidence of more than, let's say, 3,000 ants ever cooperating on anything. And we have no evidence of them moving stones. Although you have the anteaters, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, what is it, the, the termites, that build these gigantic mounds, like 18 feet tall. Uh, you can't say, just because this kind of thing works in the small, that I'll just put together billions of them, and that's how it happens in the large. There's no... Logic to do that. You need some more direct evidence to do that. Now, Stephen Jay Gould wrote this. This is your natural history, 1995. Variations within a species doesn't tell you how to treat interactions between species. He's dealing there with, with uh, snails in, the, in Central, or Central America. Sea snails. The phenomena are disparate and exist at different scales. Within a species, could be due to one kind of causation. You're talking about competition between different species. It could be a, 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 different, type of, um, a different type of causation. Now, here's the key sentence. Causal continuity does not unite all levels. The small does not always aggregate smoothly into the large. Hooray, I say. Hooray. Correct. Correct. What you see operating at a small scale does not always integrate into what happens at a large scale. It just can be entirely different phenomena. Well then, from the fact you see it working in the small, it does not, it's not appropriate to say, and therefore we are justified in saying that a million of them together integrate into the large. You all know where birds came from. Birds came from... Dinosaurs, right? Everybody knows that. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, it turns out to be gigantically controversial. Whether it happened that way and when it happened and from which group it happened, it turns out gigantically controversial. Now listen to this. This is from a magazine called The Sciences. Okay, it's an American magazine, but still, it's probably somewhat accurate. <laughs> this is written by a fellow named Larry Martin. 
one of the world's foremost experts on the birds of the Mesozoic area, era. In review of a book about um, those, uh, the, the link between birds and dinosaurs. This is what Larry Martin writes. I began to grow disenchanted with the bird dinosaur link when I compared. It's not funny yet. Hold on. <laughs> I began to grow disenchanted with the bird dinosaur link when I compared the 85 or so anatomical features seriously proposed as being shared by birds and dinosaurs. In other words, the purple people believe in the link found 85 shared features of body. Bones in various places that have the same kind of uh, shape and, and skin features, who knows what. Right? 85 different, now if you thought there were 85 shared, fe- 85 shared features, you think that makes a pretty strong case that they relate. Oh, right? To my shock, he writes, <laughs> virtually none of the comparisons held up. None of 85. That's 16 out of 85, or 23 out of 85, but zero. The moral of the story is that such poor attention to detail has been repeated with almost every feature cited to support a bird dinosaur relation. No wonder that this book, which criticizes the link, has an undercurrent of righteous outrage. The book that he's reviewing is outraged at the fact that people have assumed this link with such poor attention to detail and such inadequate scientific criticism. Or, he said, no wonder that it has been so bitterly attacked by the practitioners of the faulty logic it exposes. Now, if you imagine a science in which there are 85 pieces of evidence, and one of the world's foremost experts examines them and finds that none of them is accurate, you really have to have alarm bells ringing. What is going on? None of them? And the whole practice is repeated by these people and written in the textbooks, and they all take it as established fact when none of them is accurate. Something is seriously wrong, I suggest. Now you have the punctuated equilibrium story. Here is how Darwin and company tell it. Changes, when these changes take place, the mistaken uh, variations, you know, mistaken copies, which improve, the improvements have to be small. The changes have to be small. Because something as complicated as an organism, if you make a big change in one area without changing other things in, in compensation, they simply won't be able to function. You know, for example, uh, the, the, the giraffe's long neck helps it get at higher vegetation than other animals. It's clearly very useful for it to eat vegetation. Just imagine evolving that neck without changing the organs of balance. Well, it's just kind of totter and fall over. You know, it's like the ED won't be able to walk. You know, no, you've got to change the organs of balance. You have to ch- how about changing the heart? You've got to pump blood to the brain, and the brain is now 10 feet higher. You have to have a stronger heart. If you don't pump, you don't change the heart. You know, it's just un- <laughs> unconscious all the time because no blood gets to the brain. You know, you can't just get a longer neck. You know, like you get at the supermarket. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You have lots and lots of changes that have to be coordinated with one another. Therefore, the changes have to be small. And Darwin said, indeed, I tell you they have to be small. Well, when you look at the bones, you don't see that. Gosh. You see, jumps. Jumps from species to species with quite large changes. So it isn't what the theory predicted. Uh, 
Listen to Stephen Stanley, the new revolutionary timetable. Now, he, he taught it happens where I taught, so, you know, it's got to be right. Um, he's one of the major critics here. Myriads of species have inhabited the Earth for millions of years without evolving noticeably. You follow this species for millions of years, and it doesn't change at all. Millions of them! Millions of species you follow for millions of years, and see no change at all. Major evolutionary transitions have been wrought during episodes of rapid change. Evolution has moved by fits and starts. That's not exactly what's predicted. Now it's worse. He continues, family. The fossil record offered convincing evidence for evolution, but not for the prevalence of gradual evolution. Sure, we see changes, but not the gradual evolution that Darwin predicted. Unfortunately, Circular reasoning soon crept into the evaluation of the record. Darwin had made elaborate claims that the fossil, fossil data were too sparse ever to support this gradualistic scheme. He said, Darwin said, I know you don't see gradual changes, but that's because there are too few fossils. We've only found a few. We've only found scattered evidence of them. Therefore, I can't find the gradual, the gradual changes because they haven't found too full, too, too many, uh, uh, too, they haven't found enough Fossils to see all the gradual, uh, the gradual changes. However, how did Darwin conclude that the fossil record that he discovered was too sparse, <coughs> too thin? He only concluded it because he didn't find the gradual evolution he expected. And that's circular reasoning, boys and girls. He can't say, it's too thin, and that's why it doesn't criticize my theory. And the reason I know it's too thin is because my theory has to be true, so therefore it's the kind of the other ones that I didn't find. That's reasoning a circle. Oh, that's my short uh, explanation. I'll read to you what, what Stanley says. Darwin had made elaborate claims that fossil data were too sparse to ever support his gradualistic scheme, yet his condemnation of the record was not based on objective observation. This is what Darwin writes. I do not pretend that I should ever have suspected how poor a record of the mutations of life the best preserved geological section presented. But I wouldn't have had a clue that the fossils are thin had not the difficulty of our not discovering innumerable transitional links between the species which appeared at the commencement of the close of each formation, pressed so hardly on my theory. In other words, I wouldn't have thought the fossils were so thin unless, until I noticed that there aren't enough transitional figures in between. And now that I see that there aren't enough transitional figures in between, I know it's got to be thin. But that, as Stanley points out, in other words, Darwin deduced the incomplete nature of the fossil record from his theory. Darwin violated his commitment to empiricism. The theory is supposed to be supported by the data. You don't contradict the data with the theory and say the theory is true and the data therefore can't be right. That's not how you do empirical studies. Okay, one other feature. There are the eight triple stars and the eight quadruple stars. I'm trying to finish now. And they're out there competing away. And the eight quadruple stars are a little faster and a little less energy and their, their products are a little longer lasting, right? So eventually... The eight quadruple stars are going to fill up the whole environment, and the eight triple stars will disappear. Competition should produce extinction. Where do they go? More than 99% of all species that have ever lived are extinct. So, you know, it's, it's the only thing, extinction. You know, it's just sweeping the field. <laughs> so it's competition that should produce extinction. Now, you could have accidental extinction for other reasons, but competition should be doing it all the time. Now... There's a fellow who is the world's expert on extinction. <laughs> That's what he is. I mean, it's not, it's not a life for a kid. <laughs> David Rapp. 
And he writes in a book called Extinction the following words. Listen to this. The disturbing reality is that for none of the thousands of well-documented distinctions in the geological past do we have a solid explanation of why the extinct extinction occurred. We don't have one, not one, where we can say the extinction took place because of competition. Not one. In the thousands of documented cases, not one. Now, Darwin's theory predicts it's going to happen all the time. Don't you think they should be able to find three or four out of thousands? They can't find one. Now, if you plead poverty of evidence, at the very least you ought to say, here's the key element in the theory, and we don't have evidence for it. That will have to make you at least a little less uh, committed to the theory. We have many proposals in specific cases, but equally plausible scenarios can be invented with ease. The only evidence we have for the inferiority of the fictions of extinction is the fact that they're extinction, which is a circular argument. You know. They disappeared. How come they disappeared? It must be because they're inferior. Why else they disappear? That's, that's not evidence. Gould writes, I don't think I put this in here, but in his view, um, Wonderful Life, uh, he writes about the, the Burgess Shale in Canada, and there you had a bunch of weird monsters for a while, uh, 13 different different strains, of which 11 disappeared and two um, and two uh, won out. And he says the same thing. He says, we can easily explain why the two that won out were superior and the 11 were inferior, but we know in our heart of hearts that if other ones had won, we could have made just as good an explanation for them. So that means it's a, it's a game that anybody can play. You can apply it to anything you like. Extinction, says Ralph, is evidently a combination of bad genes and bad luck. Some species die out because they cannot cope with their normal habitat, or because superior competitors or predators push them out. But I feel that most species die out because they're unlucky, because they're subjected to biological, physical stresses, not anticipated in their prior evolution, because time is not available for Darwinian natural selection to help them adapt. He's talking about mass extinctions. There have been something like five to seven mass extinctions due to natural calamities, like the collision with a meteor, or volcanic eruptions, or other, other such things. In uh, one of them, 90% of all species died in one mass extinction that wiped the planet clean, and then there was free variation to fill up the empty spaces. This has nothing to do with Darwinian selection of fine-tuning by sh- changing the shape of the feet by a millimeter and then competing for the insects over 10,000 years, and then the ones with the shorter beaks dying out. Okay, I told you that evolution starts with something that makes copies of itself. Where is the first thing that makes copies? What they call it self-replicators. Where does it come from? Well, um, nobody knows. In the Scientific American, February 1991, they had a review article by the editors called In the Beginning. At that time, there were eight major theories of where the first self-replicator came from. Tell me, is it good to have lots of theories or bad? It's bad, because it means every theory is opposed by seven-eighths of the field. So they interviewed these people, and of course, from each one, they got criticisms of all the others, right? So they ranked up all the criticisms. And obviously no one of them had even a large plurality of of support. Now, the fellow named, I was supposed to get his name, Miller, George Miller, Miller Urea experiments in the 50s, which themselves were not what they were cooked up to be. He's been a leader in origin of life for, for 50 years. He said there, Professor Miller, none of these theories seems to do the job. Would you consider the idea of God? He said, absolutely not. 
He said, we're making a mistake. But we'll fix it. <laughs> In other words, I believe with a perfect faith that there is no God and that science will solve all problems. Maybe he does. But they have a lot of evidence for it. Um, two more quotes. I mean, they're working on this, but Tony Shapiro is a good book. Writes in a book called Origins, a skeptic's guide to the creation of life on Earth. Points out, DNA cannot replicate alone. It requires the aid of proteins in this process. Further DNA, neither DNA nor RNA has much catalytic ability. It can't function as, as catalysts. By contrast, proteins can make things happen effectively in the cell. Alas, they lack another capacity. We know of no mechanism by which they can replicate themselves. Genes and enzymes are linked together in the living cell. Two interlocked supporting systems. Two interlocked each supporting the other. It's difficult to see how either could manage alone. We must accept that one occurred before the other in the origin of life. But which one was it? A needs B and B needs A. And they're quite different from one another. So, how'd you get A without B? How'd you get B without A? Right? Now, this isn't an impossibility. Michael B. is wrong about that. But, it certainly is a puzzle. Until you have something intelligent to say about the steps that could lead to the development of this kind of independency, you have a problem. One last thing that I'm going to tell you, and then an observation, then I'll take questions. There's a special problem about the, evolve, the evolution of human intelligence. Because, you're supposed to be able to see, from the point of view of Darwin, how the conditions under which the organism lives, and its competition, and the availability of resources, and its natural um, stresses, how it evolves a new capacity to meet that environment. You wouldn't expect to explain how birds evolve wings by pointing out that they spent their time in an environment where there were no predators and all the food was on the ground. Because there'd be no point in having this. Now, how was the history of human beings and their evolution in the last 100,000 years, 200,000 years, 500,000 years, million years? Maybe we were in the trees, came down to the, to the grass when the trees died out, the savannas took over. What were we doing? We were eating berries, and, and, and uh, fruit, and we were chasing animals and running away from animals. What kinds of abilities would you expect to evolve under those conditions? Well, sharp eyesight would be helpful, and uh, especially color, color vision, which is very helpful to distinguish foods that are ripe or poisonous or not poisonous, and um, physical coordination, the ability to work in groups, because physically each one of us is very much weaker than the animals around us, so working in groups would be very important. Maybe the evolution of some kind of signaling system so as to, to enhance our ability to work in groups. Tools, yes sirree, tools and, and, and weapons, and protected living places. Good. How about solving differential equations? How about writing poetry? How about theorizing about what makes the stars shine? Um, how about um, the history of, of, of the buttercup? You know, writing the history of the buttercup. Where are advanced intellectual capacities going to come from in that kind of an environment? There's a beautiful cartoon with, with a, a, a primitive man standing on a, a, a standing side, and he's, in a, he's got a stick in his hand, and he's drawing a picture of Pythagoras' theorem 
Well, the same with two tigers, right? <laughs> and eat him up. Like, how will Pythagoras' fear help you escape from the same or two tigers? And how will it help you, you know, find more berry seeds? Where does the uh, selective pressure come from to evolve these capacities in that environment? Now, here's what Thomas Nagel, who is a professor of philosophy, writes. The advanced intellectual capacities of human beings are extremely poor candidates for evolutionary explanation. The capacity to form cosmological and subatomic theories takes us so far from the circumstances in which our ability to think would have had to pass its evolutionary test that there's no re- there would be no reason whatsoever stemming from the theory of evolution to rely on it in extension to those subjects. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. If man's advanced intellect was evolved under the conditions of finding berries and fighting with saber tooth tigers, then it was of no use in those conditions. If it was no use in those conditions, I would have no reason to trust it as accurate. Because it evolved out of control from the environment, which should have fine-tuned it into a good tool. This he borrowed from Alan Plenty. If I believe evolution's account of the evolution of intelligence, I shouldn't believe evolution. Because the intelligence that produced evolution is unreliable. So evolution becomes self-defeating in that, in that epistemic sense. If it's true, then I have no reason to believe it, because the, the instrument that produced it is inherently a flawed instrument. Now, what conclusion, conclusion should we draw from all of this? This is, this is, again, very important. I'm not supporting something called creationism. As far as I can tell, creationism is just as bad, or maybe a little worse than evolution. <laughs> evolution claims to be science, and it's done badly. Creationism claims to be science, and it isn't science, period. It's something else. So I'm not plumping for creationism. My conclusion from this, from this survey of problems is that there isn't nearly the evidence required to accept evolution as true. Could it be true? I suppose. I don't know of anything that refutes evolution. Although there have been attempts to do that as well, and they're tricky in certain ways. I don't know anything refutes it. But there isn't nearly the evidence required to accept it as true. So, I think the cautious position would be it's an interesting theory and it supports a whole industry and therefore, you know, creates jobs. That's good. <laughs> 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 uh, <coughs> but, the cautious, careful, uh, judicious thinker is going to withhold his assent and wait to see how things develop. Um, Oh, yes, there is. Some people say you have a whole, a whole raft of evidence. You only have one theory. I'm like, Philip, shouldn't you believe the best theory that you have? Okay, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it has all sorts of weaknesses and flaws. But it's the best theory we have. Shouldn't you believe the best theory? The answer is no. You don't always believe the best theory. Only if the best theory is up to a certain par of goodness. Let's suppose you have three theories to explain something. One theory is a probability of 15%. Another probability of 11%, then probably it's probability of 6%. I would say don't believe any of them. You don't believe the one at 15% because it's the best one I have. So what is the best one you have? All the ones you have are terrible, so don't believe anything. Reserving your judgment is also a, a, a rational, 
responsible position to take when the evidence that you, when the theories that you have is, is, is too poor. You should simply confess your ignorance and, uh, and not more than that. Uh, oh, yes, I know what I want to say. I have to say Shachmel Hirsch says, what would happen if all these gaps were closed? What would happen if we really had adequate evidence to accept the theory of evolution? wouldn't bother us. It wouldn't bother us. Because the theory of evolution says only that this process of random variation and selection could have done. It could have done. That's what it says. All I need to assume is that these things, things make mistakes in copying themselves and then they compete for resources. That's all I need to assume and I could explain everything. It only proves that it could have done it. That's a proof that it really did it. There's no reason why we couldn't say that God is behind this show of these variations, and He's really directing it, and He's hiding Himself, as we said in answer, in answer to the previous question. Right? So, now, I know it's at the end, and it's a long period, but I'll just say it for the sake of completeness, and there are a few things here that you can look at afterwards to see it again. In other words, evolution can't contradict total. It can't contradict total. Because with all the best evidence in the world, with all the verification in the world, all you get from evolution is it could have happened this way. You can't prove that the variations weren't directed. There's no way to prove that. God could be directing him and hiding the fact that he's directing him. So why do we care about it altogether? Because if evolution shows that it could have happened this way, then we lose all of life as evidence for what God does. As Dawkins, in one of his lighter moments, put it, evolution makes it possible to be a satisfied atheist, an intellectually satisfied atheist. But now I can say, I have an explanation for life. That doesn't prove the explanation is true, but it does show you don't have to assume God in order to explain where life came from. If evolution fails, then it's back in the soup for those poor atheists. Because then they can't explain where life comes from without God. That's the interest in it for us. It can't contradict the Torah, but it can deprive us of a whole area of evidence. And that's why I think it's worth fighting with and per- worth pointing out at certain points. Okay, questions? Yes? Is there any response from pro humanists to these like, criticisms about flaws in experiments? The flaws in experiments. I mean, this fellow coin who writes in, in, uh, in, in nature is an evolutionist. And he's one of the honest ones who says... From time to time, we have to admit that we made a mistake. And he points out five prominent ones, and this one is number six. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, um, um, I was just wondering about the laws of painting by the wire for and there's a machlokes between Hadmish and the Rafnas, what size of a beta is an egg? Shape of the beak and the, and the shape of the teeth. All of that we could definitely accept. 
That's not, a, that's not a problem for us. We're talking about the big transitions. We're talking about whether... That's why I said you can't integrate the small into the large. Remember I said that the fact that the uh, uh, 3,000 ants make an anthill doesn't mean that they built the pyramids. Little changes take place, but you don't, you don't necessarily integrate them into, uh, into the large. We definitely said that, by the way, uh, average size of animals depends a lot on the environment without genetic change. I saw a picture of a radish grown in Japan that was the size of a watermelon. So, the fact that you can make variations, especially variations in size, within a species, is something that everybody knows. That's not a, that's not a surprise. Of course I could ask. Uh, where do whales come from? Well, okay, it's not really It's something that's the precursor of both. Something that looks like, like, uh, like a, a little fox. <laughs> I don't know, about 25 million years ago, or I remember years ago. Now, the number of changes and the quality of changes that you have to get from a uh, fox to a whale is enormous. Right? So from the fact that you can grow, you can double the size of a chicken, that's the problem that you can get from a fox to a whale. You draw the line at observation. See what kinds of, of uh, see what kinds of changes you observe, and those are the ones that you can rely on. Beyond that, you shouldn't assume that you can just accumulate them to any to any accumulation of your life. There's no, no place to grow up principally. You're talking about the, the real world here. You're not talking about something intellectual. Go out, open your eyes, and take a look and see what variations take place. Dogs, they bred dogs. This is one of the standard criticisms. You know, bred dogs, they got all these funny shaped dogs, right? Um, now that was artificial breeding that wasn't in the wild. But, you didn't breed a dog as, hard, as big as a horse. You didn't go that big. You the little ones, the big ones. You didn't breed a dog into a wolf. You didn't breed a dog into a, into a jaguar. So, you know, there seems to be limits. In our experience, there are limits about how far the breeding goes. Don't take it beyond what you've observed. Yeah. Just, just a note, I just had a point to throw out the uh, last year in biology, I, um, my professor was discussing the, like, where is the first egg, where the first reproducer come from. And so he was discussing various theories, and there's like uh, that ribosomes and proteins came first, and somehow other, other uh, genetic codes came around. And he said there's another theory that, that uh, RNA um, genetic sequences were the first persons that randomly were created, and that there, have, there, has, there is currently evidence that RNA is capable of acting as an enzyme and producing itself. Right, right. Yeah, this is the, the RNA first scenario. Shapiro discusses. I mean, it's not it's not really a new idea. And that, but there are there are also flaws in these as well. Listen, um, there's a book called called um, I think it's called Genesis on Earth. This guy, guy named Day. Oh my gosh, you're going to ask about it later, and it's going to be a waste of time. Um, this guy writes down a sequence of chemical equations. Taking you from inorganic molecules to organic molecules. It's right there on the page. Equation after equation after equation. He shows you exactly how it can be done. There's only one little qualification, which Shapiro points out. That if you look at each equation, it takes place under drastically different circumstances. The heat is different. The concentration of the chemicals is different. The availability of sunlight is different. So you have to imagine... This equation taking place in one environment, and then the product being transported to another environment where the next step takes place, and then transported to another environment where the next step takes place, takes place, which is an extremely implausible scenario. Right? So you've got to look, you know, somebody said it, God is in the details. When you look at the details of these things, they often, they often go to pieces. 
Anyway, I think this should be enough to give you caution in assessing the claims that evolution is already a proven fact.